Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hey guys, I'm getting some weird sounds in my headphones. Are you hearing it, me okay? That might be the um, the tinnitus. Yeah, yeah, because we're, we're fine. <laughs> D- Dr. Nia and I were just making the point that this, uh, if anything, the studio's improved. We've got yeah. new fancy matte-painted articulating arms. So a lot of the squeaks and stuff are gone. So this is all on you. Oh, no, okay. There's something going on there. Um, hey, those voices you just heard, it's myself, Panel Beater, here in the studio with Dr. Sharma and uh, Dr. Neo. Conspicuous by her absence today um, yeah. is uh, Dr. Dilemma, who's um, using that night shift excuse again. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it is truly an excuse. You know, she's just slacking off. <laughs> slacking off. Um, she's been a trooper all year, though. Yeah, no, it's the, um, the perils of night shift. It's, um, it's one that I know, unfortunately, all too well. I, I feel. do not miss them. No. Do you know, I will say it was literally the decisive factor in me choosing to do general practice over ICU. Yeah. Um, was knowing that in ICU, one third of my training time will be doing night shifts. And yep. I've got you know, kind of health conditions where I just basically can't function. So power to you both uh, for doing <laughs> the good work. I, I'm counting down the days that I can stop working night shifts. And my head's counting the grey hairs of my night shifts. <laughs> hey, I didn't know that about you, Dr. Sharma. Yeah. Was that the, the either-or for you? It was going to be GP or ICU? It really was. ICU absolutely fascinated me. And the other thing about it, not only really clued onto this later, they are both kind of generalist specialties, mm. so to speak. You're right. not just doing this you know, one thing. There's enormous variety um, and the, the, I guess the one really kind of key thing that I missed was I see so team based, whereas GPs incredibly individual. So that's uh-huh. something I really liked. But yeah. you know, either or. Yep. And was it a light bulb moment when you made the decision, or was it torturous decision making process over time? It was difficult because you know the nature of medical work is you can't really know what it is until you're doing it. And general practice is the one thing that you are not really exposed to in a working capacity. Yeah, right. Uh, but I tell you what, within my first week of being a general practice trainee, I was like. This is great. Is that when you were getting home at a reasonable time and <laughs> weren't, weren't working the weekend and you're like, oh, friends, family. Yeah, balance, what's, yeah. <laughs> what's, the, what's the one characteristic trait, if you prefer, um, that um, ICU doctors have in common? I think the ability to to kind of to be the calm presence <laughs> in, in the midst of chaos. Yes, uh, and I, I mean I've done six months of just um, like pediatric, like NICU, so neonatal ICU. And I think, yeah, you're right. Calm presence, but also attention to detail. Mm. It's the the minutia that you know you uh, wouldn't really pay attention to on a day to day basis, but is this big red flag for them being like, oh, this has changed from you know 110 to 112. Mm. Yeah. And we need to fix it. We need to go back to 110. I, I, I wonder also, and, and of course there's much more conjecture and more variables here, but do you reckon people with that characteristic who enable them to work in that kind of environment actually have that characteristic in that every other aspect of their life as well? Oh, this is a, a big topic in, the, in our uh, workforce, the idea that 
there are general personality traits that gravitate towards certain things. And yes, you anaesthetists are a certain type yeah. and surgeons are a certain type and psychiatrists yeah. are a certain type. I, I can say that with the conspicuous absence of psychiatrists <laughs> today. Otherwise, you know, populating radiotherapy halls yeah. are... Uh, a lot, but yeah, no. So for sure, we think that this bleeds out into how they socialise, yeah, right. attention to detail, as yeah, we were mentioning. Yeah, uh, yeah and you know, GPs have a bit of a bit of a, a big picture overview, stepping back a bit. That's how I like to see uh, see my personality. I think it's the reason that people gravitate to certain career, like you know, subspecialty choices, in that you see when you're training through them, you see people. Oh, I'm like that person, and that's the reason that I want to work with you because. I can see myself in you and I can see myself being in this career yeah. and like-minded ind- individuals. I had a mate once who was an air traffic controller and, um, and if you've ever listened to those recordings of the conversations between air traffic controllers and pilots in emergencies, yes. and they're just cool, calm and collected, mm-hmm. you know, in really high-stress environments. I was, I was a passenger in his car once and he got road rage. <laughs> hang on here. <laughs> that guy just cut you off, but, uh, um, you know, I, is that what happens in the, in the um, traffic control? No, hope not. Hey, we were saying um, uh, dilemmas uh, uh, away. You've been away. I have. I have. I've, I've recently returned from the land of Japan. Um, and today's auspicious in that regard. It is, yeah. So um, today is actually the anniversary of uh, the Hiroshima bombing. Mm-hmm. So August 6, 1945 was the um, actually not... At around eight fifteen in the mo- in the morning was the yeah. um the time that the first atomic bomb was dropped on a kind of a, well a semi military target, um and you know I was lucky enough to visit the Hiroshima Museum, mm-hmm. and I found that it was such a confronting museum. Like I've been to lots of you know you know historical monuments of and and museums around the world of quite devastating atrocities and this was one of the ones that i like had such a physical response to Mm. and i think the reason i put it down to is that there's lots of quite vivid images of the days following the bombing and a lot of those images are based around children and the kind of impact of the bomb that was had on them and a lot of them have quite you know 30 40 50 60 percent burns to their body and they show these images of them in makeshift hospitals being cared for with like little sips of water. And I guess after having a bit of clinical experience with Burns patients, you realise that that child would die. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way that that child doesn't die without proper intensive medical care. They are losing litres of fluid out of those burns on a day-to-day basis that you can't replace um, through them, like through just their mouth, they're getting infections, and and they are in a terrible amount of pain. And it's I think that the further I got along, and the more images that I saw, and the more artifacts of children yeah. that were involved in that bombing, kind of the more um, it was just like slowly sinking in, and it was just mm-hmm. awful, yeah. awful. And it's such a powerful image of, of that of kids in the context of war mm. because for all the splitting that occurs in terms of who's good, who's evil, who's right, who's justified, the children are just the ultimate kind of manifestation of, of innocence yeah. and such a potent reminder of what, you know, 
collateral damage, so to speak, means in the context of... And a lot of these children were... It's been it's 8.15 on a Monday morning. They were meant to be at school. Oh, goodness. But they were out doing activities that are around the war effort. And I don't think a five-year-old is choosing to go and... Well, yeah, 90% of the casualties in Hiroshima were citizens mm. and 90% of those were women and children. And I think seeing that and then seeing the, the Oppenheimer um, movie oh, right, yeah. um, together was quite an, an interesting kind of, kind of combo because the Oppenheimer Museum in classic you know, Hollywood fashion almost, like, it almost tries to explain away the the making of the bomb and the use of the bomb and then having that such a stark contrast to, no, this is actually what happened with the bomb. Mm. And, I mean, Oppenheimer does do a good kind of ode to the 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 horrors that the, the scientists would have experienced and, and their role in making such a destructive force. But I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's truly a, a stark reminder of the... The, the reason that we try and avoid nuclear war. Um, You'd hope there's at least that reason. Mm. <laughs> um, oof, got heavy very... Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tell you one positive thing that has come out of it, especially in the context of Oppenheimer. I don't know about you guys, but there is... You know, my algorithm is just flooded now yeah. with videos of analysis of World War Two, Japan, mm, the right. context of everything mm. happening... It's nice, for, I think, for modern audiences, you know, especially you know, our generation is just not really around for that stuff, yeah. uh, to, to revisit those things and try to understand a bit of context in, a, you know, in an academic way. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, as we know, some of those stories that haven't occurred that long ago are very quickly forgotten by generations. So really, yeah. Good opportunity for a reminder, no matter what your views are on the film. Before we uh, talk about the show ahead, a um, uh, really important matter. Um, has come to come to mind. Sam Kerr's calf. Yes. Yeah. The most talked about calf, calf. in Australia. <laughs> yeah. So diagnosis by proxy. She hasn't. She. We're told she got injured on the um, on the eve of the World Cup. Now this is like three or four weeks ago. Just on that basic fact, doctors in the room, and a kill uh, a, a calf recovery period. Just a conventional strain. So, well, conventional strain. I mean, you know, we're talking a, a few weeks, but dep- there's a strain and there's you know, a strain, right? There's if we're talking about tears versus you know tendonitis versus tendinopathy, all those things. Like the Achilles tendons, for example, can just take three six months yeah, right. to repair. So it's very interesting seeing people have very uh, hard views on what is going to happen mm. with this calf. And the, the experts I know are saying, well, I don't know. Yeah, right. It depends. There's yeah, a lot more we so need to find things, out. Yeah. It's a classic, uh, the, the dichotomy between the expert and the armchair expert. Sure, it? sure. And there's also the point that you won't really know until you find out. Like, she's going to go on the field and it could be fine. She could go on the field and it could start playing up in five minutes. I, yeah. yeah, I guess that's the risk management, isn't it? It's like it could snap in straight away or snap, or if that's the phrase. And, and the other interesting thing is that when we're talking about patients getting back to their 
regular activities, even if it is a bit of sport, that's very different to the demands <laughs> on the calf of Sam Kerr. That's right. a very specific uh, load <laughs> that, that that calf has to bear. The, the, the expectations of 25 million people on that calf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right. They're, they're just Their bodies are so finely tuned. The yeah. margin for error is, is quite acute, right? It's the... Um it's the, the calf that will lead me to a public holiday that I, des- <laughs> that I desperately want. Anyway, we'll know more tomorrow night. So, great show coming up. Uh, working backwards, at the tail end, we thought we might have a bit of a generalised discussion about um, uh, medical malpractice, depending on how uh, time allows, um, given that um, some discussion around Charlie Teo and others has been in the news uh, lately. Um, Dr Sharma, we've got a wonderful guest coming up in the middle of the show. Yes, we have uh, Professor Baum, who is the Professor of uh, Health Equity, will be helping us uh, talk about the influence of private consulting firms when it comes to forming health policy in this country. We know they've been under the the microscope recently, but what does it mean for health policy? We'll be talking to the expert. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, we're going to take a track and then come back after tracking a couple of announcements um, to have a bit of a discussion around how... News around artificial sweeteners and sugar more broadly is uh, surfacing in uh, in the news at the moment. So stick around for us. It's Radiotherapy. It's myself, Panel Beta, with Dr Sharma, Dr Neo and uh, Dr Dilemma in spirit. We'll be back after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, Head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Sugar and artificial sweeteners, Dr Sharma, what's caught your attention? It was in the news recently uh, because one of the WHO, the World Health Organization's arms, uh, declared that aspartame, which is the artificial or non-nutritive sweetener that's found in most diet sugar-free soda drinks, uh, may possibly cause cancer and, of course... uh, News organisations, social media were just absolutely lit on fire and I was just cradling my head (laughs) on the bathroom floor, crying myself to no sleep, really, um, at the way it was discussed. And I really think this is the the, the story, right? So with us actually talking about exactly what happened, so the IARC is the International Agency of Research on Cancer and they will be in the headlines, you will see from this point onwards, every two, three years, because they will classify things as possibly causing cancer or not. And what they decided to do was take aspartame, uh, the the non-nutritive artificial sweetener that's in sodas, and shift it from unclassifiable, which is what it's been in the past, they didn't know, to category 2B, which means possibly causing cancer. What does possibly causing cancer mean? It means that there is some evidence that there is increased risk of, of, of cancers. That's not enough context, though. Let me tell you some other things that are also in Category 2B. Aloe vera uh, is in Category 2B. Um, talcum powder is in Category 2B. I'm not, I'm not talking about the old style that has asbestos in it, but, you know, like... <laughs> um, and, and things that definitely cause cancer would be... Category 1 would be uh, being a hairdresser, right? <laughs> right. Uh, like, and, and so this is kind of... And alcohol. Yes, absolutely, and alcohol is there, right? So, so the issue is that they, they classify these things in ways that when headlines are made, are really quite kind of shocking to people. But obvi- the, the truth is actually a lot more nuanced, right? So, for example, some of the research they looked at, it showed that, well, in some populations, maybe people who are diabetic, 
maybe we're seeing some increased rates of hepatocellular cancer of the, the liver, right? And it's like, maybe, because the numbers are really quite tiny. And in fact, on the whole, for, uh, for every other type of cancer, there's clearly no increased risk that has ever kind of been found. So, uh, uh, so, so what they can't do on the other uh, is this, this body, they can't say, well, we can't just dismiss these studies just because it may be due to chance, which they might well be, but they go, oh, look, I su- we suppose there is some possibility, you know, quote-unquote, more research is needed, um, and it's very easy for this very nuanced truth to become, you know, really quite dichotomous. And, and the way it was discussed... Uh, amongst people was really quite... I suppose I shouldn't say I was shocked. But uh, you, you should just see that the sides that people were picking was incredible. Well, it's the, it's, I think it's how we discuss risk in the general terms. I mean, like as you were saying, lots of things are in, included in Category 2B and lots of things that, that are quite thoroughly dismissed by a lot of the uh, scientific community are still included in 2B because it's a bit of a general general category that doesn't really give you a lot of hard and fast evidence and that's the, that's the point of the category for example mobile phones are in 2b how many people do you think are avoiding carrying their mobile phones because of um this this classification but i think that it's it's good that we are having this discussion about aspartame and hopefully that that's including it in 2b will trigger a influx of new research that will has a larger kind of population size and a larger um ability to what we call power in in evidence and that's um it can come to a more definitive conclusion but i think for now it's not something that you need to be um throwing out all the diet coke in your fridge for so there's the relevant relativity between um artificial sweeteners and um and other products that we've just done artificial sugar and alcohol, artificial sugar and mobile phones, etc. But then there's the relevance of artificial sugar to sugar. Mm. Yes. Right? Mm. And so if you're on a if you're having if you're knocking back six cans of Coke a day and then you go to the artificial sugar can of Coke. This is it. Right. The, the question really when it comes down to artificial sweetener for most people is the 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 counterfactual. Right, so when we talk about artificial sweetener in the, in the context of, say, something like you know, kind of weight loss or, or any of the other myriad of health issues, there's not—it's not even close to a context yeah. contest of which is better or worse for <laughs> yeah. you. It's not even close to close, right? Yep. And yet uh, we've we've hyper focus on just the the absolute goodness or badness of a product. You, there's there's no kind of end to that discussion. Whereas you know, compared to, to actual you know, to, to, to table sugar and added sugar. Uh, that that I think is really the the context in that's lost here. And you once you start to realise that this is what's happening in the, the discussion about artificial sweetener, you see this happens in discussion with so many other yeah, things. Yeah. Uh, you know, vaccines, yeah. mask versus no mask. You'll see the same pattern repeat over and over again. It's a relationship uh, for the general public and science is part of that story, isn't it? You know, so if if there's a general respect for science and uh, literacy to interpret science, yep. then you're going to develop or you're going to mitigate against the cognitive bias that you might have where you ignore the fact that there is no safe amount of alcohol, really, um, but there is potentially a safe amount of artificial sweetener. There, there, there almost certainly is. So, in fact, the WHO themselves had to issue a clarification saying that, you know, casual, infrequent use of artificial sweetener is 
almost certainly fine. Yeah. But as much as you talked about the interface of you know, science bodies and their <coughs> advice versus the public, there has been actually for decades now criticism of this body, the IARC, which is, well, yes, you're classifying them in this way of like possibly causing cancer or not, but you know, you, these, are, these are messages that are being sent out to people. They are by their nature very without nuance, yep. uh, this classification. So mm-hmm. there is some responsibility perhaps on them to communicate this better. And this is an issue that kind of occurs again and again. So it's, I, I really don't know how much this is a problem that's going to be solved by you know, increasing scientific literacy, which some of you always kind of talk about. Um, the other thing that I want to go back to is what you mentioned, Dr Neo, about this is potentially good because we're going to get some more research happening in the area. So I, I'm a little bit sceptical, right? Um, my concern is that there's mountains of research already that shows that uh, for most cancers, and I mean 99.9% of cancers, there is really kind of no increased risk with, with, uh, with aspartame. Uh, that has not convinced people. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, the, the issue is always going to be with this classification system is that, yes, you've got two or three studies that show tiny tiny increases in absolute risk of cancer. You've got heaps of other ones that don't. The imbalance of evidence is already there. Mm. So if you do, if, you know, if the more research that is needed is done, uh, how many more negative studies will we need to see before, firstly, the um, bodies like the IARC actually reverse what they say and reclassify it? And, and, and I, I'll give them credit. I, I think they, there probably is a number of studies at which they'll change their mind. But the bigger question is, is that actually going to change public's perception? Or are people always going to be completely prone to that confirmation bias, that motivated scepticism of, well, yes, but that study did find a 6% increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma in these patients who are diabetic, you know, which which a scientific literate audience would go, that could be absolutely due to chance. Those are tiny, tiny numbers. So I think in many ways kind of the battle is lost once that initial poor message is gone. And as we've learned from vaccines and that link with, you know, with autism, I mean, that, you know, you, there is no amount of scientific studies that is ever going to, to convince uh, a certain subset of the population. The question is, do we hand them a platform and a megaphone to promote it? Well, I, like, I agree and disagree at the same time in the sense that I agree that a... <laughs> I, I agree... Bit both ways. Yeah, right? but I'm, I'm sitting on the fence here. Um, I agree that that it's almost unhelpful to have study, study after study, but showing a negative response. But I think that large population-based studies are very hard to remove the bias from and yes. very hard to control for factors that are influencing people to drink these sh- like non-sugar-based drinks. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, in general terms, the people who are drinking these are often people who have been told don't drink sugary drinks, which are diabetics, uh, um, people who are trying to lose weight. Uh, it's a self-selecting group. But in that self-selecting group, they are probably already at risk of things like hepatocellular carcinoma. Absolutely. Um, but that does not mean that we have to ne- we can necessarily safely say, well, they're already at, they're already at risk. It's probably just it's probably just the um, their baseline risk. Yeah. Um, for an at-risk group to have additional factors that are causing, um, are putting them at higher risk for cancer, it's actually quite an important finding um, to to kind of tease out. It might be, it might all be negative, and it might all be just their baseline risk. But if you're putting this group who are self-selecting into a, into a sugary drink for the reason for for health, and that's then putting 
getting an actual loading on their risk of hepatocellular carcinoma, it would be important to tease out. That, I think I agree with your disagreement, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I do say, I mean, no doubt that already at-risk group, we, we probably do owe them the yeah. scientific truth on these things. But I do wonder in terms of the weight of public opinion how much that's going to sway people. That I'm still a bit sceptical of. And the, these are the minutiae that, that get lost in... Uh, media announcements on scientific discoveries. Yeah, you're only going to get that on Triple R. Yeah. So, only on radiotherapy. Um, we've had uh, nutritionists on the show um, a number of times over the years and one of the constants that um, um, that each of them in their own way have said is that the cha- one of the challenges with um, research in nutrition is the number of variables mm. uh, in people's mm. lives. So somebody who's a, um, a, uh, you know, a smoker is also unlikely to be a jogger <laughs> um, and, uh, or is maybe a high-risk taker in other factors of their life. And so you don't know which of these variables is the one that's largely... Yeah. Yeah. Something I, I often say is that you know, we put you know, man on the moon back in, 19, in the 60s, we will not find out if eggs are good or bad for you for at least a couple of centuries. The, the nutritional science is because of all the things that, that yeah. Panel Beta and, uh, and Dr Neo said, there are so many what we call confounding variables, it is almost impossible to disaggregate things down to just one. Can I just say, if you've got a thought on this, text in at 0466 98 1027. Um, I'm sure people have some uh, screaming at screaming at their radios right now. I reckon with... there's a lot of people taking right now saying <laughs> it does cause cancer. It does not cause cancer. It's good. It's bad. But if you've got a bit of nuance, do share it. We'd love to hear it. Oh four double six nine eight one zero two seven. As Dr. Neil was saying. That's a fabulous segue into the guest we're just about to get on the phone. It probably matters to the extent that it does if this um, if this science gets published and circulated mm. and absorbed into policy making mm. and what impact that might have on labelling, what it has on um, public communications in public health and so on. We do have a fabulous guest coming up um, in just a moment, um, Professor Fran Baum, um, who will be talking to us about uh, the government's engagement of consultants, in particular their relevance to um, uh, public health policy, um, not just uh, in regards to tax, as we've heard mostly about it uh, in the news recently. So stick around. You're on Radiotherapy. It's myself, Panel Beater, with uh, Dr Sharma and Dr Neo. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We're going to turn our focus from sugar to something very unpalatable, private consultancy firms. They've been in the spotlight recently. Uh, The involvement of PwC has really been the main focus recently with robo-debt and the corporate tax dodging. But I think most people are smart enough to figure out that there's probably a broader problem here that extends beyond just a few bad apples. Uh, And so management consulting firms uh, have also been looked at, but I think what's something that has not been looked at very much has been their role in healthcare. And one person who has been keeping an eye on this is Fran Baum, Professor of Health Equity at the University of Adelaide. She became an Officer of the Order of Australia for her advocacy work on improved access to community healthcare and to professional organisations. And she joins us now. Professor, welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you. Great to have you. Professor, give us a picture. What exactly do these 
big private health uh, consulting firms do for Australian healthcare, and how much do they do? Well, I mean, we're, our focus, yes, includes healthcare, but it's broader than that. We also want to look at all the factors that create health in, you know, that, that are way beyond the health system. But they'll do a whole lot of advice on how reorganisations of health departments happen. Uh, they'll very often be contracted to do auditing work of the health department. And sometimes they'll even come in and sort of directly do health department functions. And if we just look in, um, in the financial year 22, their contracts to the Department of Aged Care were something like $85 million. So you can imagine how much extra health care or public servants you could have or people delivering health care for those kind of sums. Professor Baum, um, it's Dr. Nia here. Thank you for joining us on the show. Hi. Just uh, thought we'd take a step back and get you to give us a bit of an overview of you know, who your typical consultants are. Well, maybe I should take a step back and say why we got interested in this, in the whole topic, is that we were looking at why Australia is getting less equal. And this was about three, four years ago. And, for instance, in health terms, um, the inequality between the sort of bottom group of people in terms of socioeconomic status and the top used to be one and a half times and it's now two times. So we, we then talked to a whole lot of people who had been active in public service and, and bodies like VCOS and so on. And a num quite a few of them were saying, well, the problem is there's all these consultants in the public service. So the public service never builds up skills. And, it, and the private consultants certainly don't have a focus on whether things are getting more or less equal. So it was from that that we sort of started exploring, well, what is happening in terms of these consultants? And then we realized that there was a really huge industry out there that was making a lot of money from contracts with government. And, and then uh, most recently, this year, we decided it was when we were still sort of looking at this, we found that there was a fantastic um, book published by... Um, a woman called Maria Masukato and her colleague, which I think is Colleton, and it was called The Big Con. And they really looked at the way that consulting firms across the world, not just in Australia, were working both sides of the street, as they put it. And they, they noted things like all these consultancy contracts are under a veil of secrecy because... People always say, oh, this is commercial incompetence. And then on top of that, we also now in Australia have an inquiry into the management and assurance of integrity by consulting services in, in the federal Senate. So it really, and, and of course, as you've mentioned, we've had the issues with PwC and both advising clients using the information they've got from the Australian Tax Office and also the uh, robo-dutch example where consultants were paid uh, a lot of money, a um, million dollars, uh, in terms of providing advice on robo-debt and all that the public service got was a PowerPoint slide presentation. So there's lots of red flags there, I think, that we really need to look at what these consultants are doing, how useful is it to the public, and what impact does it most importantly have on our public service? And we think that leads to a big de-skilling of our public service. Professor, there's perhaps a problem underlying all this, which I think you referenced very, uh, very tersely. You said uh, these big private consulting firms aren't really concerned with health equity. 
Why do yeah. you think that is? Because, I mean, if anything, they are consulting firms. They are being given the parameters of the, the task to kind of consult on. Is there something intrinsic here that you feel makes them less likely to attend like th- to things like inequity? Yeah, well, I mean, it's very clear that they, if you think these, these firms are massive, they've spread across the globe, and they very much grew up with the era sort of from the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan era of of sort of basically having a philosophy that public is bad, private is good. And this whole philosophy of what uh, economists call neoliberalism, but basically um, presuming that public services need massive reform, that they weren't functioning well. And in, in lots of ways, these private consultancy firms came, stepped into that gap. But of course, what they do are sort of one-off contracts. They don't have a vision for how um, healthy or how equitable Australia should be. And as these firms have moved in, there's, if you, you know, in that Senate inquiry, there's submission after submission of people saying, well, what's happened as a result is we've got a public service that hasn't developed skills because they've been outsourcing those to the private consulting company and there's no kind of sense of the public good and because they've public services have been cut that they they don't have enough staff to do the core functions more and more of government work including policy development is outsourced to these consulting firms and of course their ideologies are very much about private is good and public is somewhere we can make money from but you know to put it bluntly so in that environment it's going to be very hard for a government to say well we really want to focus on um, achieving a more equitable Australia when all the advice is sort of coming in pointing out the benefits of the private sector so um, a lot of the a lot of the people like the Australian Institute there's a group of sort of critical accounting academics who have put submissions into the Senate committee. And they really are saying, you know, we're undermining um, the quality of our public policy in Australia. And a lot of people might think our policy isn't important, but it actually is because it drives what governments do. And if we want good, innovative policy that's really going to tackle the big issues that we have in Australia then we do need an, in, an independent public service that will give blunt advice to the government. And I think it, we used to have that and we don't have it any longer. It's, it's quite a, a, a damning analysis of these, these groups, Professor Baum. Like, as a, as a public doctor working in the public sector, and just, we, we have discussions around this you know, public versus private way of, model of healthcare quite frequently and... Almost unanimously, we are in agreement that public healthcare and the ability to provide equitable and affordable healthcare is the reason that we are doing the job that we're doing. How can consultancy groups kind of justify shunting us down a more pro- towards a private model of healthcare when the people who are actually there, you know, on the front lines? want nothing less yeah i mean you put that very well and you know i think we'd all agree if any of us are seriously sick you want to be in a public teaching hospital not a private hospital um and but i guess 
it comes down to ideology, that the basic underlying ideology of the private consulting firms it is about, you know, believing that government should be small and that the private sector can do a whole range of functions. And, you know, in Australia, I mean, there's the, the consulting industry, but we also have to look at the whole way in which a range of essential services like water, electricity, in some cases healthcare, um, have been transport, have been outsourced to the private sector. And I know in Victoria, I think some of your energy privatisation is going to be wound back. Uh, that was one of the election promises, I think, of the Andrews government at the last election. And I think now there's, uh, around the world, there's an increasing demand from citizens. Um, I, I work very closely with the People's Health Movement and with colleagues around the world. Um, in different countries, for instance, in Bolivia, there's been a big campaign about renationalising uh, re re water supplies. And that's in India, there's similar movements. And I think a lot of people, general people in the population, are waking up to the fact that that what was promised from privatised services just hasn't happened, that they'd be cheaper, they'd be more efficient and so on. And there's an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that's not the case. But I'd also say that overall um, this trend towards privatisation hasn't been properly evaluated either, which I think is a problem. And when people have done evaluations, they've shown that they haven't really delivered um, the benefits that they said that they would. Professor Baum, um, uh, panel beta here. Um, really enjoying the conversation. I want to just maybe bring in the um, double-edged sword that is all of this in the context of democracy, um, in the sense that, you know, conventionally when we talk about democracy, we mean the proximity of relationship between citizens and their government, the government being the actors who engage with the policymaking itself. Then we contrast that relationship with one between the consultants and the government, where there's basically a client relationship going on and and the consultants really treat the government as client and we want to keep the customer happy. Um, can you talk to that and what that might mean for the formulation of health policy? The, I guess the electorate also loves to hear that the government's budgets are getting smaller. Um, now, of course, there's smoke and mirrors there, but, but they can say that we're not spending as much money on the public service and that means we're making a, you know, a difference to public expenditure in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've nailed the problem, really. I mean, for a start, a lot of these contracts with the government, it's impossible for, for us to know as the Australian public exactly what's happening with them because they're, 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 they're secret and, and the secrecy is saying, oh, well, this is commercial incompetence all the time. So we don't actually know what's going on or what value we're getting for the large amount of money that people have sp are spending on private consultants. And we're not saying that... The, I wouldn't say there's no role for them, but um, at the moment they seem to be acting as a shadow public service that is not accountable. And even the way the firms are structured, they're not structured like many other corporations. They have this notion of partners, and apparently that makes it... It's not my area, but it makes it much more difficult for people to track exactly how the companies report their profits and so on. Um, but in, the, um, in their submission to this Senate inquiry, the Australian Institute pointed out that if you look at the late 80s and then you compare with the latest years they had data for, which was 2016 and 17, the amount gov governments were spending was, was nearly three times higher. 
So we know that we're spending a lot more on consultants. We know that what they do is, is, is commercial in confidence. So in terms of the issue you're talking about, public accountability, there's really very little. Whereas public servants, of course, are, have to be much more accountable. And we don't have any authority, given we're spending so much money on them, that is taking a sort of whole-of-government approach to these consulting services. And many of the people making submissions to the Senate inquiry are saying, well, that's exactly what we need, a proper statutory authority that really looks at whether we're getting value for money and what the conflicts of interest are that we've already talked about, that very often, you know, they'll be advised in private firms um, and, and the government on similar topics. So, for instance, a, a number of us around the country were really surprised when the government put their health and climate strategy out for consultation mm. to find that KPMG were actually running the consultation. Now, while, the, while there were public servants there, it nonetheless means that there's this private company with private interests in formal government consultations, and there's been a lot of people who have been appointed to that as, as a real conflict of interest. Professor, uh, just one last question before we wrap up. Uh, I think you might have referenced, we probably can't consolidate all of the expertise back into the public service as much as we'd like to, but so in the meantime, if we are to achieve a happy balance, what are some safeguards that we could have imposed on these consultancy firms? What is the framework that would allow us to eliminate some of those problems uh, with, them, with their involvement in policy formation in the meantime? Well... You know, I, I think um, one of the most important things is that authority, which is established, and it takes a whole of government approach to how much consulting is happening and whether that, you know, initially saying, well, there's these areas that could be taken back into uh, the public service. It obviously is going to need um, rebuilding the public service so that, you know, the aim of our brightest and best graduates is to go into the public sector, not to get a job with a consulting firm. So I think it's really important that we do that. And I think we have to evaluate their services in terms of value for money and, and their performance. And also um, do some... One of the things that seems to have happened is they get a contract, then they get extensions to that contract. There should be some regulation about whether they can keep getting extensions or whether they should only be able to have one-off contract, which will be a lot easier if you're bringing most of the work back into the public service. Some very practical um, solutions there. Well, I think, I think there's two, you know, the one is, um, in two, there's one, you, you regulate and control the work of consultants, and number two, you really invest in the public service and recognise that that's the way to get accountability to the Australian public. Professor, thank you so much for those thoughts, and if anyone's more interested, you can uh, see uh, the Professor's article in the conversation on this matter. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. Most welcome. That's Professor Fran Baum, Professor of Health Equity at the University of Adelaide. You are listening to Radiotherapy on Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Our attention was caught by some of the... Um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? The verdicts yes. um, around mm. Charlie Teo. Now we're not going to talk about specifics of Charlie Teo, but what that what that um, moment 
does and, and moments like that is it draws our attention to medical malpractice or something uh, along those lines and and what the, does that what are the impacts and influence does that now have dr Sharmi, i think you've got some thoughts yeah i think it's a saga a true saga that has played out over many many years and i feel like this is a conversation that's been conducted in three places by kind of three i suppose stakeholders I hate using that word but that's just kind of what it is there, is, there are the conversations regarding this case that I think the medical community has had. And then there have been the conversations that have been kind of conducted in the media for, for years, which I think has been a really big uh, obstacle here uh, to, to getting a speedy resolution. And then there is also just specific things that patients who are involved, directly involved in this, um, and, and their voices and dissenting opinions uh, often... And so this has been essentially been happening for years, and to see the kind of verdicts come out, they'd be pretty pretty straightforward in terms of what they felt was done appropriately and inappropriately by Dr. Charlie Teo. Um, I see that the media has certainly shifted uh, somewhat, um, but uh, the, the medical profession, you know, in terms of their views, not really much has kind of changed there. But uh, goodness, the comment section in the social media is absolutely incredible. I'm seeing comment after comment, not necessarily from ex-patients. So I'm not really kind of talking about uh, the specific case of Dr. Dr. Charlie Teo here, but things like, uh, if it were my child, Hmm. um, I'd do anything. You know, and and, and the idea being that if there is this one doctor who's promising a cure that no one else can, then I would take that up. And on the other hand, you have regulators and medical bodies kind of suggesting that maybe you should not there is this, this genuine opposition here. You've kind of got this paternalistic medical body saying, hey, we don't really think you should go for this treatment. We don't think it's in your best interest. Whereas you've got people who might be in a position of, of having a, a, a child who's, who's seriously, seriously ill going, don't tell me who the, who, what the right treatment, who the best practitioner is. I'm going to make up mm. my mind. It's, it's a really fascinating thing that you've just brought up in, in that, again, completely removing from from the Dr. Teo conversation, just paternalism in medicine and the idea that um, that of do no harm, first do no harm. And in that sometimes we can do a lot of harm by the the, the prognostication of certain cases and, and saying, you know, we don't think that this that this is worth pursuing because it does more harm. But then other individuals saying, actually no, you know what? Just give it a shot. Just, mm. just let's just do it, and that sense of hope and that sense of, of oh, actually, it's all going to be okay, does a lot, a lot of harm, and that's kind of the core of the case to me. How would you both characterise the sincerity of the regulatory bodies? Um, are, are they just being sensibly risk averse, or uh, or is there some other kind of paternalism or patronising going on? You, you mean in terms of the verdict that they're... The Not the verdict itself, just like... So if if we have a regulatory system that says these are the boundaries of decision-making that a surgeon can take mm. and the practice that they can perform, dependent on all this other information, yes, um, then a big part of that is that regulatory body making a risk assessment um, for the for the health sector, the relevant and, health and, sector. And so to that, it's a great point, and to which I will say... Uh, a regulatory body is always going to be imperfect when deciding where the boundaries of risk should lie. But believe me, the asymmetry of information between regulators and health professionals versus patients is so stark that uh. it's absolutely the lesser of two evil. 
You just need to read the comments of people pertaining to this case to realise, I'm sorry, you do not have the knowledge, the expertise. You may have the, the interest here uh, in terms of you know, all the motivation to do the right thing, but there is no way we can expect patients to synthesise no. and go, what risks can I take mm. and not take when, when it comes down to things as specific and yeah. high stakes as a, as a child with cancer and where the, the worst outcome is not necessarily death versus no death but quality of life yep. versus you know the complete absence mm. of, of this. So, yes, the regulator may be imperfect but, but this is a case, uh, I think, very strongly for the need for, frankly, some, for, for some medical paternalism. Yeah. And it's to the point where that even medical professionals who are not in that field cannot make a decision. Absolutely. It is such a sub-specialised decision that prob- there's probably a handful of people in this country that can make that decision. And it's, it's impossible to expect people to, to have to the general public to understand the risks and the benefits and the minutiae. But I think performing... I think that's why having a kind of unified decision is important for this group because giving conflicting evidence to individuals from th- you know four people say no don't do it and one person says yes actually mm. let's do it of course you're going to follow that one person mm. of course you're going to take that take that decision and i think you've made such a beautiful point that even amongst medical professionals uh, we would have a hard time unless it was our area of specialty yep. and so often i resort to exactly what you've said which is can some sort of consensus amongst a group of experts yeah. rather than necessarily my slicing and dicing of the data. Yeah, because of course you're going to take the option that gives you the most amount of hope. Just before we do say our fine farewells, it just also occurs to me though that we still want some aspiration from our regulatory bodies, which is to sort of look for innovative ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be a door ajar for opportunities for those, you know, Surgical procedures, medicines, etc., um, to be at play. Yeah, absolutely. And, and mind you, you know, the, we we were just talking about the higher stakes uh, cases here. You know, kids with fatal cancers. You know, where things uh, where the stakes are lower. I can understand why we'd want to have some more openness and absolutely some you know smaller liberalism, uh, siding with the with the power of patients really. So it's it's been a, to see the case discussed in the way it is has been really instructive to me in terms of. The, the various values the various stakeholders, as we mentioned, have, the media, health professionals, patients. Nice one, um, Dr Sharma and Dr Neo, and thanks for being in spirit, Dr Dilemma. Thanks also to our special guest, Professor Fran Baum, um, talking to us about the engagement of uh, consultants in the development of health policy. I'm sure that's far from the last we're hearing of that as an issue. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.